From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to continue to teach on this topic of love that I've dredged up a couple of times. <clears throat> this would be actually a third installment on that. And stay with me. Keep your ears open. I think the Holy Spirit has something for you here. Some of you are going, well, I give it a rest already. I mean, come on. It really can't be that complicated, can it? <laughs> oh, well, complicated, probably not. Nuanced, Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so far we've looked at the, the love of God in terms of the agape love of God. And we've, we looked last time at different ways that God expresses his love. So is the topic of love complicated? Not really. But it's enormous. It's enormous. So let's have at it one more time here. And I'm going to look at how important... This issue is not only God's love for us, but our love for God. And the Bible speaks of a day when a scribe approached Jesus. Uh, He was hanging out with a bunch of his friends in Jerusalem. And he asked Jesus a fairly straightforward question. You find the question in Mark 11, 29. Um, Uh, Actually, you find the answer to the question there. But his question was this, what's the greatest commandment? Remember that? Yeah, here's his response, Mark 12, 29. Jesus says this. He begins by quoting the Shema. This is from Deuteronomy. Jesus answered the question. He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he continues, and you shall love the Lord, God, the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Probably anybody who's been a Christian for 15, 20 minutes or so, you know, probably might be familiar with this passage. It's very familiar. Uh, this is a commandment. Jesus has made it uh, exceedingly clear that it's, it's not only is it a commandment, it's the greatest commandment. So if this is the greatest commandment that we love the Lord our God, then this must be something uh, of importance, a concept of importance that we should probably understand as best we can. So yeah, I'm going to have at it one more time here. So these scribes... <clears throat> They've approached Jesus, um, uh, but they weren't the first religious people to confront him on that day. Uh, He's already dealt with uh, several kind of trick questions that have been hurled at him from a group of Pharisees. Uh, And then there's a delegation of Sadducees who get in on it. And now these scribes are here and they are giving him these questions. And all three of those groups uh, are representatives within the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council there in in Jerusalem. But the scribes, these are the theologians. These are the people who are experts in in the law. These are the specialists in, in biblical interpretation. 
So it's really not kind of, you know, it's not very shocking that this kind of question is coming from a scribe and he's asking Jesus the question, what's the greatest commandment of all? So if you read the account, to me, in, in kind of contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this question from the scribe doesn't seem to have the same kind of hostility behind it that the other guys had. Uh, it's more like he's coming to Jesus because he's very interested, you know, or maybe he's kind of professionally, professionally curious or something. Um, he's just watched Jesus foil the attempts to bait Jesus into giving some, some kind of a stupid answer to a bizarre question. Because he's answered questions like, uh, you know, uh, who do you pay your taxes to? You know, obvious bait here. They want him to say something bad so that Rome will come and uh, chastise him. He wanted to get him to say something bad about Rome. Jesus does not go for the bait. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Then he's asked a stupid question about some, you know, brother denying his uh, his wife, uh, leaving him childless. But basically the story is, you know, a guy gets married, he, he um, uh, had seven brothers, he passes away, you know, so the next brother marries his widow, but he dies, and so the next brother marries the widow, but then he dies, and they go through this like seven times. So their brilliant question, you know, all the, all the brothers die. And so the, the question that they really are burning in their hearts is, Jesus, to whom will she be married at the resurrection? It feels like a Monty Python skit to me, but uh, that's probably just my warped mind, you know. A duck! You know, uh, if you know that reference, you're something wrong with you. But uh, Jesus basically calls them idiots and uh, goes, yeah, I, I can see where you boys messed up. I can see where you messed up. You don't know the word of God, is what he said. And he also said, you don't know the power of God. You've made a massive mistake. Now, the scribe had probably watched all that. He's standing there in the midst of all this. Maybe he had a professional admiration for how Jesus had navigated this, you know, exchange. So maybe he's not asking a a trick question. Maybe he's just an intellectually curious question. What is the single most important commandment that God has given to the entire world, to every human being who's been created in his image. So Jesus directs this theologian to the most fundamental summary of our obligation as humans that God has given to all people. The Shema, they call it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's recorded way back in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6. Every Jew knew this portion of scripture from the time they were a child. They recited it three times a day. So they know it. And when the Shema was spoken, they were, they were directing their focus towards God. You know, So it's God in the Shema who's the object of love. It's God who's the object of, of d- devotion. It wasn't some kind of you know, Star Trekian, impersonal, cosmic life force. It wasn't some unnamed, universal, unknown, higher power kind of thing, the universe. It wasn't anything like that. 
the Shema stated clearly God's identity. The Lord, our God. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God of Isaac. This is the God of of Jacob. This is the God of Moses. This is the God who's delivered Israel out of bondage in, in Egypt. This is the God who's parted the Red Seas and set fire down on the top of Sinai, right? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So I want to park right here. What in tarnation does that mean? To love the Lord God with all your heart. Well, Larry, come on, that one's easy. Love Lord God. I'm going, well, you know me, nothing's easy, right? You ever think about how we toss that word around? You know, heart. If you're going to love him with all your heart, I'm... If you have a heart of gold, it means you're kind. If you have no heart, it means you're cruel. If you wear a heart on your sleeve, it means you're obvious. If you put your heart into it, it means you're passionate about something. If you say, well, at least your heart was in the right place, it means you're an idiot, but you might, well. If somebody says you're speaking from the bottom of your heart, it means they're telling the truth. If they say, I cross my heart, it means they might not be lying this time. If your sports team showed heart, it means they didn't give up. If they lost heart, they gave up. If you say, well, you know, you felt like you were stabbed in the heart, it means that you were hurt to your core. If you're Billy Ray Cyrus, you have an achy, breaky heart. If you're Johnny Cash, you've been flushed from the bathroom of your heart. You can be faint-hearted, light-hearted, heavy-hearted, cold-hearted, broken-hearted, hard-hearted. You go, oh yeah, it's simple. It's just simple. You know, just love them with all your heart. It's obvious. I'm going, what does it mean to say to love him with all your heart. It might not be completely apparent. Right, okay. I probably overdid that, but you get the point. <clears throat> it was fun, actually. But I think that, you know, most people use this word heart first and foremost in terms of emotion. I think we tend to just go with, you know, the heart is more about, about feelings than it is about thinking. I think that's where we kind of start. We tend to pit the heart against the head. We put them in conflict with each other. We, we think like the tin man from the Wizard of Oz. He's talking to the scarecrow. The scarecrow wanted some brains, not the tin man. No, what's the tin man want? He said, he said this, I shall take the heart. For brains do not make one happy, and happiness is the best thing in the world. So I think we look at, at the heart as our feelings, and that the heart is somehow in conflict with the mind. And we're told, you know, you need to listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. But, you know, this, this pitting of the of the heart against the head is such a cultural norm. It's, you know, it's certainly, I've, I've experienced, I think this is the way that we operate in church as, as well. So again, if you're going to love the Lord God with all your heart, what's it mean? I'm going to drill down on this a little bit. Hang with me, okay? Don't nod off. So what's the Bible talking about when it speaks of the heart? Well, it's a, it's a very important word. It's used in scripture a lot. 
Um, and it's used to describe our inner self, our, our inner life, the soul, the spirit, the conscience, the heart is used. All those words basically that talk about the inner man uh, are included, but the word heart is the word that's used the most often when addressing those concepts. 981 times the Bible uses this word heart, or it's, it's, at least it's translated into English in that way. So why is it so important? Well, one reason might be what Proverbs says. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything about your life springs from one central point, the heart. This is, this is the control center of your life. It's the driver's seat. It's the, it's the helm of the, the ship, if you will. As the heart goes, so goes the person. So it's a complex word. It's simple on, you know, on one hand, but it's also complex because it's revealing the inner workings of mankind. Now, the, the Puritan theologians, they spoke of the capacity of the heart in, in a three-pronged way that I'm going to tell you about, which I find very compelling. They saw that the, the, the heart or the inner workings of man as three things. Number one, the mind. So they didn't start where we start. Number two, the desires, or they called them affections. And number three, the will. So when they're speaking of the heart, it's what you know, it's what you love, and it's what you choose. And when we're speaking about the heart, meaning, meaning the inner workings of, of man, we start with, as the Puritan said, the mind, which is not our normal starting point, right? We start with what we, we know. I know it sounds counterintuitive uh, because we tend to think like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. So uh, I'm saying we don't necessarily need to start with the heart being primarily the realm of feelings and emotions. Let's look at the scripture for just a little bit here. Here's Psalms 139.23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my Know my heart, know my thoughts. Hearts and thoughts are interchangeable. Matthew 9, there's scribes talking, talking about Jesus. They're, they're saying that he was blaspheming. And, and Jesus says this in Matthew 9, 4. He says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Hearts and thoughts, again, are interchangeable and they are thinking with their heart. Hmm. Ephesians 1.16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Again, hearts, thoughts, the arena of the mind, they're all interchangeable. I'll give you one more. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and 
discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your heart has thoughts and intentions. My, my point is, basically, that contrary to what the tin man has said, and contrary to our normal assumptions, the heart and thinking are not in conflict with each other. Okay? Thinking and the heart go hand in glove, right? And again, the heart being defined as the inner workings of man, it can be viewed in this three-pronged way of the mind, the desires, the will. It's what you know. It's what you love. It's what you choose. So the, the second of that list um, is the desires. I mean, what is it that you long for? You know, what do you want? What do you seek? What is it that you crave? And the language of the Old Testament might use terms of hunger and thirst. That's what you'll read in Psalms, like as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Or he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So it goes to the core of the question, what is it that gets to the very best of your energy? Where is it that you have invested yourself emotionally? That's what Jesus is talking about where he's going, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So what is it that you most treasure? You know, what is it that you most, that you most desire? And hey, look, just because we desire something doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good thing, right? You know, Bible says that some desires can be healthy, some not so much. Some are going to destroy you. Some need to be controlled. Some are good. They need to be encouraged. We're taught in, in Exodus 20 to not covet, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife, your, his servants, his farm animals. Don't covet anything he owns. That word covet, by the way, means desire. Don't desire them. And yet Jesus is saying that he earnestly desires to eat the Passover with his disciples. So, again, the idea of, of desire isn't necessarily a positive or a negative. It just depends on the context of what's going on. But I will say this, desire is something that we experience. This is an experiential thing. And when those desires are met or when they're denied, we're going to experience joy or we're going to experience frustration or anger. We're going to get excited or we're going to get envious. We're going to be fearful, anxious, sad, all that. The realm, the entire range of, of human emotions can be experienced in response to desire. It's visceral. And that's why I believe that we, we often and rightly associate emotion and feelings and stuff like that with the heart. And I think that's why the scripture uses this word heart in its English translation, uh, translation to describe things that we feel in such profound ways. Oddly, I think, the second word, this is the, the second only to the word heart, the word liver is used. The English 
translation might say heart, but the Hebrew might say heart and liver or kidneys or bowels. Uh, And you see it all over scripture if you're not reading in English. Here's one. uh, This is 1 John 3.17. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's a literal translation. And whoever may have the goods of the world and may view his brother having need and may shut up his bowels from him, how doth the love of God remain in him? I think I prefer the, uh, the heart version rather than the bowel versions. Uh, I think I'd rather have the guy have his bowels shut up from me. Uh, just my way of thinking, but uh, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, However it's translated, what it's trying to do is give you the sense of where you feel things. You feel things in your gut, right? In the pit of your stomach when you've been, when you've been gut punched and you're breathless and you're speechless and you're, you're overwhelmed. When you've heard that unexpected news that someone you love has passed away or something tragic has happened. Or it could be good news too. You, you, you got the news that your, your baby's going to be okay. The feeling that sent you to your knees, it shocked you, it overwhelmed you. Johnny said he loved you in your heart. You thought it was going to explode. That's all part of the heart, right? Again, the, the, the heart is the inner workings of man, and it can be viewed in this three-pronged way that the, that the uh, Puritans taught it. The mind, the desires, and the will. So... The third one is the will. This was a big deal for the reformers in the late 16th century because now we're talking about the decision-making function of the heart, your volition, your, your resolve. Are you going to submit or are you going to resist? You know, are you going to say yes or are you going to say No. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? This is where the battle for the heart is won or lost, right here, in your will. In your will, this is it. Important issues of the heart uh, depend upon the weakness or the strength of your will. Whether you're lost Or whether you walk out your salvation with fear and trembling depends upon your will, your heart. You can see uh, you can see the sinful will. It's it's so apparent. It's so stubborn. It's so it's so rebellious that that the heart of Pharaoh is described as hard, hard. Then you can see the same heart. It can be weak and it can be a slave to to temptation and sin and it can be a heart that resists God with all its might. But then there's a righteous will. It resists temptation. No, instead of of being a hardened heart, it's a broken heart. It's it's a heart that's filled with 
with repentance and sorrow before God. It's a heart that becomes strong. It's a heart that becomes courageous. It's a heart that experiences and longs for freedom. And yet it's a heart that is firmly established in God. So it's strong, it's filled with courage, and it's free. So again, there's more there's more to this than just knowledge and convictions. The question is, will you stand by your knowledge and convictions when push comes to shove? It's a good question. Many of us are facing that right now. The culture is pushing very, very hard. They're asking questions that you better Know what you believe and why you believe it. And then you're going to choose you this day whom you will serve. In fact, Fabian, uh, Fabian and I were supposed to meet yesterday. We're going to have Fabian teach a, a six-weeks class on difficult questions that are being asked. Um, a lot of this is going to have to do with the heart and you making a choice this day who you will serve. Um, I like reality shows about Alaska. I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> Marilyn is long-suffering and generally leaves the room. But uh, I was watching one, uh, um, and there was this hunting guide, and he's pointing out that every Alaskan you know, knows what they're supposed to do is if a grizzly bear is coming after you. It's going, I need to know this. I need to stay tuned. <laughs> uh, so put it on pause, get some popcorn, you know. You never know. It could happen, you know, in Spring Hill. Number one, don't run. Number two, avoid eye contact. Number three, walk away slowly. Number four, if the bear charges, stand your ground. Number five, if it makes contact, curl up in a ball. And the guy on the reality show is going, yeah, yeah, we all know that. You know, we all know that. The question is, what are you really going to do when it happens? Do you have the resolve to stick to your convictions when the bear is making contact with you? That's a nice euphemism. It's not ripping your face off. It's just making contact. The guy on the TV said that the best solution to this was just to hang with friends who run slower than you do. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> but I thought I got to the point, you know, the will. Do you have the heart? Do you have the will to stand by your knowledge and your convictions? So to love the Lord God with all your heart means your mind and your desires and your will. It means all that you are. And here in Mark 12, Jesus is spelling it out. Spelling it out. It's going, he's going, God, love God with all your heart. He could have stopped right there, by the way, but he didn't. He continued on. He makes it obvious. Love him with all your heart, love him with all your soul, love him with all your mind, love him with all your strength. This is an intelligent love. You know, it's an emotional love. 
It's a willing love, and it's an active love. It's an all-consuming love. Guys, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? It means to love the Lord God with your entire being. And we know the object of our love, right? He's made himself known in the Bible. The better you know him, then the deeper you know him, and the more you know him, then the more there is to love. It's just like we do with people, regular people, even God is a person. Now, the religious people who confronted Jesus that day... um, they're asking this, this question, you know, they're the guys who've been asking these stupid questions to them. Uh, they are nowhere near this type of love for God. They've read the Shema and recited the Shema since they could utter words, you know. It's an unmistakable command. It's not complicated. It's not like they don't know what to do. They know what to do. It's not like it was unavailable to them to know that. But I'll tell you something this morning. It's, it's, it's not something that they or us can do on our own. This greatest command to love the Lord God with all of our being isn't something you can just work out and work it up and do it on your own. Right? And so these scribes who confronted Jesus, uh, they, had real, no, they had no real interest in knowing God or loving him. These were hypocrites, these Pharisees and Sadducees and Sadducees. These are hypocrites of the worst kind. Just think of the, the, the scenario in which they're asking these, these questions. This is, they're questioning Jesus. This is on Wednesday of Passover week. Two days before they kill him. Do you think they really cared what they're asking him? They've already planned on killing him. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been teaching the kingdom of God. And they confront him first. But then he confronts them. And you can read about that confrontation back in Matthew 23. But you see how far the religious people are from actually loving God. And it's kind of terrifying what Jesus says to them. He's going, woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's face, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and then you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You're just blind guides. You're fools. You're fools. You're blind as bats. You're so careful to to clean out the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're just filthy, greedy, and out of control. That's the Larry Day paraphrase of Matthew 23. Jesus is angry. These people are religious. And folks, they're just like us. They're concerned about their appearances. They're concerned about the outside. They're concerned about how they look. But they never get to the inside. They never come to a place where they love God. They love themselves. 
They love money. They love their jobs. They love their position. They love looking good outwardly. They, they, like they have it all together, like they're all beautiful and righteous, but they are whitewashed tombs. They're full of dead man's bones and stench and rot and decay. That's how Jesus described it. They are anything but lovers of God. And I'm just telling you, you know, God wouldn't stand for it then. And he doesn't stand for it today either. Okay? He's not impressed with your outward appearance. He just doesn't give a flip. He commands this inward love. He commands it. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If you want to be blessed by God, just look at this. You want simple? I'll give you simple. There's two kinds of people in the world. This is from the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20, uh, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. There's the first category. You have people who hate God. Second category, two kinds of people. Next sentence. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. They're simple for you, you know. Today, sitting here, you're either a God-hater or a lover of God. It's one of those two. Those, those, are, those are the two choices. You can't, I'm agnostic. No, you're one of those two. What defines people who are born again is that they love God. That's how you know somebody's born again. They love God. What defines people that are not born again is that they hate God. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you're known by God, if you have a true relationship with him, it's evident because you love him. Here's the opposite way to say that in First. Uh, Corinthians 16, it says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be, that means anathema. That means damned. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned. My point is, we can't fool God. You can't Paint the lipsticks on a pig, you know? It doesn't fool anybody. We can't say that we love him and then try and try to make people think that we love him and try to act like we love him by going to church or singing in the choir or carrying a big Bible around or, you know, leading a small group or teaching vacation Bible school or getting baptized. You, you can't do all these outward acts and think you're fooling God and not love him with all 
your heart, with every fiber of your being. And just in case you were thinking, yes, I can. I'm excellent at that. I'm such a good liar that I can fool even God. Jesus throws in this second part of the commandment. goes, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've heard some folks, and I read some commentaries, basically going, well, you know, Larry, what that means is you just need to love yourself more. You, you need some me time. You know, you need to spend a time just loving on yourself and uh, pamper yourself. Get a massage maybe, you know. You need a little self-affirmation. You need a better self-image, you know. Uh, some self-esteem. You need to love yourself more. No. And I don't mean to burst your self-love bubble, but you don't need to love yourself more. You need to love yourself less. You're already loving yourself plenty. (laughs) Well, Larry, why would you think that? Well, who was it who dressed you this morning? Chose your clothes for you this morning. Now, who spoon-fed you your breakfast this morning? Your whole life is consumed with taking care of yourself, right? You can't help doing it. And Jesus really isn't talking about that. He's talking about something, doing something that is very difficult to fake. He's calling you, he's commanding you to love others the way that you already love yourself. Treat other people with the same uh, care and the same concern and the same attention to detail that you're already doing for self. And I'm telling you, you can't fake that one. Not for long. It's either there or it isn't. And then he answers his, uh, the, his, he ends his answer to the scribe this way in Matthew twenty two forty. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I go, well, what's that mean? Well, it goes back to the law. It goes back to the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord God with all your heart. Don't have any gods before me. Don't make false idols. Don't take his name in vain. Remember to worship God. That's loving God. And then that list continues. Respect your parents. Respect authority. Don't kill people. Have respect for moral purity. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal people's stuff. Be content with what God's provided. Don't covet people's property and all that stuff. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. So as it pertains to our our relationship with God, it really isn't all that complicated after all. It's, It's actually stunningly simple and it's brilliantly summarized by Jesus. God is saying, love me with every fiber of your being, with everything you have, with your whole heart and love others. Not just people you like, not just your homies, okay? Not just your brothers and sisters. Love the unlovable. Love your enemies, even. What kind of love is this? Well, I can tell you it wasn't the kind that the religious leaders who spoke with Jesus that day were thinking. They had nothing but contempt and disdain for others. They despised the sick. 
They had contempt for the, the poor and the weak. They had no respect for people that they considered to be inferior to, to their ways. The Pharisees wouldn't even eat with a non-Pharisee. It was all a sham. It was false. It was corrupt all the way through. Which is what makes the response of the scribe in Mark 12 kind of amazing to me. Because here's what he said in response to Jesus' answer. He said, the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. This scribe understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And he agreed with Jesus. You're right, Jesus. You're right. You nailed it. Excellent answer from another professional. Remember, they're standing right in the temple courtyard where this exchange is going on. There are sacrifices and burnt offerings that are taking place constantly, and especially right now, every morning, every evening, every single day of the year, but at Passover, the massive sacrifices that are added to the regular uh, sacrifices, we're talking thousands and thousands of sacrifices are going on when he's confronting Jesus about this, and the priests are everywhere, blood is flowing like rivers, you know, and this scribe is recognizing that love for God and love for others was far greater than his religious system of which he was a part. You're right, Jesus. You're right. The scribe, he knew too much. He couldn't deny scripture. He knew Jesus had nailed it. He knew the law. You're right, Jesus. And Jesus says to him this glorious statement, You're not far from the kingdom of God, which is actually a horrible statement. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Sounds good. Not good enough. It means you're near the kingdom of God in the sense that you understand intellectually that there is a internal component related to the law of God. It means you understand that it's, it's not just about ceremonies and sacrifices and a, some system of religion. But it means you're near, but you're not actually in the kingdom of God. You're not a lover of God and you're not a lover of others either, which means you're a hater of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I think you understand why. Things shut down. Nobody dared dig any deeper on that topic. Folks, being near the kingdom of God isn't good enough. You have to enter the kingdom of God. 
And you enter the kingdom of God by trusting that Jesus' death on the cross has restored you to right relationship with God the Father. You have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, that he's ruling and reigning as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You have to trust with every fiber of your being that he's coming again in power to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. It's not just enough to say, you're right, Jesus. You're right. What that pastor said, he was right on. Ooh, that's good. Good stuff. Pastor Lendl, he's, he's just so, says some great things. Ain't good enough. It's not enough to be near the kingdom of God. Those same people, like the scribe, you know, who might have also agreed with the scribe, and they might have also said, Jesus, you're right. Those same people, just two days later, murdered Jesus. While they're saying, you're right, Jesus, you're right. Close is not enough. What it means is you either love God all in or you don't. And the truth is we all have to admit that we have not kept the great commandment for even a single day of our lives. And the problem is, we don't really care. There's no great sense of conviction. Well, Larry, you know, nobody can actually do that. You know, so, you know, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's more like a hypothetical kind of love, right? I can't do it, so it must not really be a, a big deal. So lighten up. You know, the Jews at the time of Jesus taught that there were 613 commandments in the Torah. The scribes noted that uh, some of these were heavy laws and other of them were, were light laws. And even Jesus did that over in Matthew 5. He talked about the commandments and the weightier matters of the law. But even so, no sin is to be considered so small that it's insignificant. And no sin is so great that it actually destroys the grace of God in our souls. But if I were to ask you this morning, which I am, what is the most serious sin of all? Let's leave the Holy Spirit one out of this. Murder, uh, adultery, Idolatry, unbelief. Sure, we can come up with a lengthy list. I can't help but wonder this morning that if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the greatest sin might be the failure to keep that commandment which scares me and ought to maybe scare you a little. There's no way that I've even attempted to keep the great commandment for more than 10 minutes in my life probably. I might get part of it, 
and fail in another part. Certainly, I've never loved God with my whole heart. I couldn't claim that. My soul hasn't overflowed with affection for any great length of time. I'm positive that my mind has been lazy trying to understand God's word. You know, I'm probably way more interested in the times in the reality shows about Alaskan grizzly bears, you know, or woodworking or music or things that just interest me or a hundred things. And however much I've applied my mind, uh, you know, cut it in thirds to the amount of strength that I've applied to my love for God. Except for Jesus, I'd be eternally condemned of this sin, and rightly so. But let's think about Jesus for a minute. Just consider him for a second. Was there any portion of Jesus' heart that was not completely in love with the Father? Did Jesus restrict his soul from affection for his Father? Was there anything that the Father revealed that Jesus just kind of ignored, you know, being unworthy of his attention or something? No. Was his love for the Father a spineless, weak love? Or did he demonstrate the most powerful, strong love for the Father that the world has ever seen? You know the answers to those questions. Jesus kept this great commandment perfectly. Every second of his love, of his life. He loved the Father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. And if he had not done that, he wouldn't have fulfilled the law of God. Which means he would not have been worthy to save himself, let alone us. So no, this isn't a hypothetical love I'm talking about. This is the standard. This is the target. This is it. Sinless perfection. This is the greatest commandment. It's to love God and others with every fiber of your being. And you might be thinking, Larry, I'm doomed (laughs) Uh, what's wrong with me? I'm not sure I've, I've felt this type of love towards, towards God, let alone others. Well, if that's true, do it as the psalmist suggested. This is Psalm 139, 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And guess what? He will. He actually will. Your love for God isn't a simple desire to please him. It's it's not just gratitude for things that he's done for you. It's not just fear and respect and an awe for who he is. I'll end here. I heard this professor talking about one of his students. She was a young lady. She walked into his classroom uh, one day. She got a bunch of bling on her left ring finger, which she's showing off um, 
everybody, and she's standing beside her boyfriend, Johnny, and the, the, the professor asks, uh, did you get engaged? She goes, yeah. The pre- professor goes, to Johnny? She goes, yeah, he's so smart. He's so handsome. And the professor goes, well, why not Billy? He's even smarter. You know, and he looks pretty good to me. You know, he's fairly handsome, you know. She goes, yeah, but Johnny's so athletic. The professor goes, yeah, but Billy plays even more sports than Johnny, you know, uh, and he's probably even better. And, and she begins to struggle for words a little bit. And finally she goes, yeah, but Johnny is just so Johnny. <laughs> That's the point. We don't love God for what he provides to you or how powerful he is or how wonderful and wondrous he might be. We love God because of himself, because of who he is. And you grow in your relationship with God, like I said earlier, the same way you do with people you love. You get to know them. You get to know them intimately. You spend time with them. You talk with them. You laugh with them. You cry with them. And it's the same thing with God. God has written a love letter to his people. Read it. Read it. And when you read God's word, you can see what makes him joyful. You can see what makes him irritated. You can even see what makes him cry. When you spend time with his family, when you spend time with the church, you can see his family features reflected on his family. You can see his love towards you in that he sent his son because he loved. God loves this broken world, right? That is full of broken people. And he loves us so that we can love him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Grace Church, he's not hiding this morning. He's not hiding. He's made himself available. And I'll end with this scripture. If you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart. Grace Church, seek God with every fiber of your being. Amen? Now, we're going to end with the response time. Some of you are not even attempting this, and this is not a message of condemnation. The Holy Spirit has been hovering around this room, and he brings conviction. He wants us to up our game, not to get something from him, but because he loves us and because he wants you to be in a closer relationship with him. He wants your life to be blessed. He wants to set captives free. He wants to heal people. And he wants you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. So I'm challenging us this morning to step in a little closer. Step in a little closer. That's the greatest commandment. We should take, listen to it. It has to do with love. It has to do with heart. God's heart for us and our heart for him.
Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.